Welcome back to Moments in Leadership. I'm retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Dave Armstrong, and this podcast is for emerging leaders of all ranks of the military and for civilian leaders who are looking to gain additional leadership insight from senior military leaders across all service branches. Before we get started on this episode of Moments in Leadership, I just wanted to say thanks for listening. Whether you're a first-time listener or you've been following along from the start, I really like to know what you think about the show and, of course, any suggestions you have for improvements. But here's how you can help me keep this project going. And the good news is it's costless. If you could please subscribe on either Apple or Spotify and leave a five-star review if you think it's worthy of that. And leave a very quick review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. I'd really appreciate it. Just even a sentence or two really makes a difference and makes the podcast look current in the eyes of all of the algorithms. Uh, The reviews and the subscriptions and the five stars, it also makes it easier for other people to find the show, and it really helps a lot more than you think. And since Spotify just began their new rating system, hitting that five star inside the player only takes a second, but it really helps a lot. You can find Moments in Leadership on Instagram and Facebook under Moments in Leadership and at The Mill Office on Instagram. I'm active on Instagram, so DM me there, or alternatively, you can email me at themilloffice at gmail.com with any suggestions or even ideas for future guests. I'd really appreciate it. I'm probably more responsive on Instagram than I am on that Gmail account. Finally, I'd love to get these episodes out faster, but I really do try my best. This is a hobby project for me, and I love it, but I also have a full-time job, and if you think I'm busy, you should see how busy my guests are. So because of that, Getting everything scheduled, prepped, recorded, edited, and posted, it just takes more time than I thought so. Any suggestions are welcome, of course, but that's it. It is what it is. Thanks for understanding. And uh, so with that out of the way, today I have Major General Dale Alford, United States Marine Corps, on the podcast. He's currently the Commanding General of Training Command in Quantico, Virginia, which is not to be confused with Training and Education Command, or TCOM. Training Command, it touches the entire Marine Corps, both officer and enlisted. It includes close to 90 regionally aligned formal learning centers under 17 unique 06 level commands, 17. 15 of those are commanded by Marine colonels and two are commanded by Navy captains. And these learning centers are spread across the continental United States with additional detachments in Hawaii and Okinawa. And at any given time, there can be more than 28,000 Marines and sailors under the command of Major General Alford. This includes both instructor staff and the students, of course. And all of these personnel are engaged in training associated with 242 different military occupational specialties. And while I can't list all of the formal learning centers, some of the more recognizable ones are Officer Candidate School, the basic school, the weapons and training battalions um, on both coasts, School of Infantry, both East Coast and West Coast. There's three Marine Aviation Training Support Groups. There's the different Marine Corps Intelligence Schools, the Marine Corps Communications and Electronics School, Comelec School, the Engineer School. There's the Combat Service Support Schools, which also include all the different training that takes place at Fort Leonard Wood for the motor transport assets and some other things. There's artillery training at Fort Sill, There's the Field Medical Training Battalion, which is what trains our corpsmen on both the East and West Coast. And then finally, the 
Assault Amphibian School. So in this episode, we are taking an in-depth look at Major General Alfred's moments in leadership through his vignettes and stories, which should give some listeners some great insight into a leader who has led in combat at every rank he has ever held and has four combat action ribbons. And with that, I'd like to welcome Major General Alfred to the podcast, sir. Thank you for joining me today. Hey, it's good to be here, Dave. I'd like to start with just a quick question of how did Dale Alfred become interested in joining the service in the first place as a young man? And how did you select the Marine Corps over all the other options? Yeah, that's an easy one. I graduated from high school in 1981 as a 17-year-old. Didn't go to college for my first year. My sister was dating a, a guy named Tim Mossberg the next year. So this was um, the fall, uh, August of 82. And he was jumping in his car, getting ready to head down to West Georgia. They were starting the uh, fraternity rush. And he said, hey, you want to go? Got a party all weekend. I'm like, sure. Like, I had just gotten off work. Jumped. It was a Friday. Jumped in the car. Went down. Fraternity party Friday night. Fraternity party Saturday night. I came back Sunday and said, Dad, I want to go to college. You know, at the time, West Georgia College, I always say, yeah, it's barely above a high school. It was like going to the 13th grade, but it was, uh, it was cheap. I had to come back. I had to get my SAT scores and my, you know, my transcripts in order to enroll. And I don't even remember taking the SAT. Tell you the they probably made us take it when I was a junior. I made like a 680 on it, I think, right? So I had to take 099 classes. For a whole year, and we were on the quarter system, so three quarters, fall, winter, and and spring quarter. So I, I mean, for God's sakes, it was oh nine nine English reading and math, like reading, right? So I essentially, and I started in oh ninety nine, level three. In the fall, and then if you pass those, then you went to level two in the winter, and then level one. So I, I, I went an entire year of college with no credit. I essentially learned that year what I should have learned in high school that I didn't because I played football and wrestled and uh, ran track. And if you showed up to school every day, you passed. It's kind of where I grew up. So that's how I got to college uh, and joined this fraternity. And this fraternity had uh, a bunch of Marines in it. So the winter quarter so the fall quarter, at the end of the fall quarter of 1985, uh, December of 84, January of 85, I failed out of college. So I was struggling, partying all the time. So I went and I was going to enlist in the Marine Corps. So I did. I went to the recruiter in, in February because my fraternity brothers were Marines. All, they had gone to boot camp. So I said, hell, I'll do that. But I, at first, I enlisted to go active duty. Now that I have been on recruiting duty, I, I had RS Nashville for three years, 98, 2001. I know what the recruiter was doing. So he came back to me sometime, I think it was in April. I was supposed to, to ship in June and said, hey, how about if you switch to the reserves and I'll help you get into the officer program? Because some of my buddies in the fraternity were in the PLC program. He said, you do well at boot camp and I'll help you get in. And he did exactly that. Gunny Arendelle was his name, career recruiter. And what he needed was a QSN, right? He needed to fill a slot for a reserve job. So I switched. So I went to boot camp, the 85-day reserve program where you didn't. I got out of boot camp in September. I went back to college, and I made all A's and B's 
for the rest of the my my uh, three more years, almost three years that I had left. And so, were you drilling in college at the same time? Yes. So I started started going to drill, and then I got into the PLC program somewhere spring of '86. I got accepted. So back then, you couldn't stay in the reserves and be a PLC, or you were temporarily discharged. Uh, and if you failed out OCS, you had to go back and finish your six years obligation. So I went to boot camp in 85. I went to PLC juniors, summer of 86, PLC seniors, summer of 87, and then TBS, summer of 88. So I was in boot camp four summers in a row because back then TBS was kind of boot camp in the first few months. So that's how I got in the Marine Corps. I always had a, a three-year contract because I was... Just wanted to do it, do, do three years and then move on in life. And here I sat 34 years <laughs> That's later. Great. What did you, so did you go to an MOS school while you were in the reserves or did you just do boot camp and then? No, but just boot camp. And I was a machine gunner MOS, but I never went to SOI because I went to PLC juniors instead. I, I was supposed to go the summer of 86 to, to uh, SOI, but. Uh, One more quick question before I, before I jump in, because this is, this is sort this made me really think about this. So you go to TBS, you, you had some, and I'm using my air quotes, background in infantry as a reservist. I'm going to assume that your first choice of MOS at TBS was, was our infantry. Yes. Let me tell you what I was in. I was in the worst unit you possibly could be in as a reservist. I was in headquarters company, headquarters battalion, 4th FSSG. I mean, you can't get any worse than that, right? And it was at Georgia Tech. So we would pull the machine gun out. On Saturday morning, clean it, put it back away, then go to McDonald's. I mean, the, the five or six, seven drills that I went to, we never did anything. But you must have at least liked infantry. I'm assuming that infantry was your first choice of MOS at TBS. It was. Okay. So something about infantry must have resonated with you even a little bit uh, from drilling, I'm guessing. But here's my question to you. What was your second choice? Shit, I have no idea. I, I, pro- probably artillery or or, or engineers, I, I don't even remember. If you remember back to when you were a brand new second lieutenant, and now 35, 40 years later, you're a major general in the Marine Corps. And really, we all start out as either an O1 or an E1, but 1% make it to general officer. So can you start off by telling us some stories that you remember from the first five years of your career? that you look back on as being those crystallizing moments, those aha moments that have stayed with you up to the rank of major general? Yeah, so I, um, TBS, we graduated November 10th in 88, and then uh, went to IOC. IOC, uh, January, or December, January, February. Went to the fleet, went to 3-6. So everybody wanted to go to 8th Marines back then, right? Because 8th Marines had four battalions. They were the, did the med, med floats, you know, the Muse. And at the time, 6th Marines only had two battalions, 1-6 and 3-6. And we were smaller battalions. We had 10-man squads, fire teams of three and a squad leader because we were doing the Panama contingency rotation, the 6th the Marines. 2nd Marines... Had three battalions, and they were doing they they did the cold weather. And then Eighth Marines had uh, four battalions, and the fourth one was two four, which I ended up in two and a half years later. I got to the fleet, and our first, my very first exercise as a was Purple Star, is in May of eighty nine, 
And during the the kind of the rehearsals, we were, I was in a Met in an Amtrak unit, and we were the aggressors. The hatch of the TC hatch was tied back with com wire because it was broke, and we were practicing and going through and and and. Uh, hitting bumps, and the lid came loose, came over, hit me on the head, and it crushed my last two fingers on my left hand. It crushed my wedding ring. They had to cut the ring off. I had pins put in my, in, into my, my finger. I was medevaced, and somehow I got myself back to the, to the platoon a day or two later and finished the exercise. And I remember getting my ass chewed by the, by the battalion commander or the, I think it was actually the, 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 the adjutant, which was now Mr. Havel, who's out at uh, the deputy at Marfor Res, because they had lost me. They lost accountability for me because I was supposed to be back in the rear and I wasn't. I still, I've never wore a wedding ring since. So I don't even have one. It got cut off. So. But that was the beginning of being a tough guy, showing up, right? Got to be with your Marines. I got NJP down in Panama. Uh, we went to Panama in J- right after that exercise in June of 89 for a JWTC so at uh, Fort Sherman, the Jungle Warfare Training Center. And I had pins in th- this finger, the ring finger, two pins, and the pins wasn't taken to my f- finger. They were, it was, my finger was starting to rot. And the doc, Doc Nye, I'll never forget this cat, I go to him and he's clean. I, I was like, hey, hey, these pins need to come out. I need to get these things out. So he sends me to Balboa Hospital down in Panama, which is the other side over in Panama City, Army Hospital. And there was, I remember there was an Army major doctor looked at my finger, cleaned it up, and said, hey, these pins need to come out. I was like, then take them out. He's like, well, I can't because I'm not in charge of you. And you got to go back to your doctor to get authority to get them taken out. So I go back to Doc Knight and I tell him this. And he says, no, I disagree. So my XO, Jeff Jewell, went back to the tents. I took a pocket knife, and you could see the pins moving. And I slit. We cut slits, and I pushed him. He got a pair of needle-nose pliers and pulled them out. And then I just used alcohol and, you know, every day and went back to training. And about a week later, Doc Knight finds me in the field, and he's like, hey, you're supposed to be coming back to see me and, you know, clean that finger up. I'm like, hey, Doc, I took the pins out. Right? My finger's fine. Leave me alone, basically. I'm a second lieutenant. The next day, my company commander, Don Klein, who was also my OSO, by the way, that got me into the Marine Corps, the officer program, comes to me and he's all like, shook up and pissed. And he's like, hey, the battalion commander, Sands Robnick was his name, wants to see you. He had like four or five bronze stars from Vietnam. So I had to go, go to the little tent you know, remember the old uh, command tents? Sure. He went in the front. There was a lot. Go in there. He sat behind a field desk. Doc Nice in there. Sergeant Major of the battalion's there. And I, I report to him, and I'm get, he's NJP for disobeying Doc Nye's orders, right? I took out the pens on my own. And so he goes through the proceeding, and he's like, you know, did you take the pens out? I was like, yes, sir. He said, were you told not to? I was like, yes, sir. He says, well, how is your finger? I said, that some bitch is healing up, sir. He ripped the papers up right in front of me. He said, "You're dismissed, Lieutenant." You know? <laughs> so every time, every time I saw Doc, Doc Nye, I'd look at him. He'd look away from me. <laughs> so, true well, story. Uh, okay, let me, so let me put a spin on that for you. Now, you're Major General Alfred, and 
some officer comes up to you for NJP for something like that, has your attitude about misconduct or anything changed since then? Or would you have done the same thing your battalion commander did and just tear the papers up and say, F*** that? I think I would. I've always said, you know, rules are, you know, most rules uh, need to be broken at times. And as we go, common sense, a lot of times the rules don't meet common sense, particularly in combat, particularly uh, on a deployment when things aren't, aren't as clean as you make them out to be. So I've let Marines off. I've got a few stories of let Marines off uh, uh, that I've, I've had Marines in front of me. I've told this story multiple times. So in Iraq, as a battalion commander, you know, we out in Al-Qaim in 05, we pushed up Burns. We ended up with 14 positions where the, the Iraqi soldiers lived with, with the platoon of Marines. Uh, we were the first to do that out there. And that was the beginning of the awakening. That was the, even uh, Sitar called it the little awakening. And said the sun rose in the west, right? Because the Abu Mahal tribe was the first tribe to really pick our side. And that was in the fall. That started in the fall of 05. So we were living with the Iraqi soldiers, and we had shitters that we built, right? Uh, made out of, out of, you know, plywood shitters. And the Iraqis would stand up on the seats and crap all over the seats, right? And, and then use water to wash herself, right, where we sat down, right? So they would poop on the, on the toilet seats that we, we had stole from, from the Alkheim. We took from the big fob and took them out into the field. Squad leader had to clean the shitters. It was in, it was in Kilo Company. And the squad leader's all pissed off because he's told these guys over and over and over not to do this, right? And they did it anyway. So he took gasoline poured it all over the shitters and set them on fire. <laughs> the first sergeant brought him to me for NJP, and he was belligerent. I mean, he's standing in front of me, and he's like, F*** it, sir, I told these guys, I, over and over. And he says, but I got a solution. This is a, a sergeant. I said, what's that? He says, okay, we, we built two different shitters. We have our shitters and their shitters. We mark them, make sure. And when you pull our shitters out, we pour the diesel fuel in it, right, and have to, have to burn them, burn them. He said, but the problem with theirs is, is theirs is full of water, right? So we pull it, we, we make theirs a little higher so they can stand up in there, and, and, we, and we take the tubs that are a little deeper, and we have to dig a hole behind their shitters, and we, we fill that hole halfway up with gravel. So we pour their shitters into this hole, the water runs down through the gravel, and then we burn the shit on top of the gravel. I'm like, you're brilliant, right? <laughs> go, go make that happen, right? So I've torn up NJP very similar from that story. That's great. I love those stories. If I could take that vignette and and spin it into a hypothetical leadership question, a saying that I've used often in my life is that rules are simply a guide to the very smart person. Absolutely. It's much like doctrine. Exactly. Great, great point. So I'll, I'll spin this into a doctrine type question where I'd like the answer to be something that could be digested by a sergeant or a, or a lieutenant, and it's this. You're a leader, enlisted, officer, doesn't matter. You're leading something, and the rules say that you cannot, I don't know, mix two different types of ammunition together on the back of a truck, because we know this crazy rules exist, right? And they're all in the cans, they're all still banded up, everything, but the rules say you can't mix them. So you have two trucks, one of the trucks breaks down, and a major operation is just simply not going to happen unless you get this ammunition out. 
So you're an officer and you look at this and you say, I know the rules say I can't mix these ammunitions, but I don't think that these two things are going to react with each other and blow up on the way out to the train area 29 pumps. And you make the decision to put all the ammo on one truck because you feel like the mission, the training mission is more important than the probability of that truck exploding because you've put two different types of ammunition together. But then somebody finds out and that lieutenant is in trouble. How do you give advice to a lieutenant or to a sergeant and say, say, here are some of the things you need to think about if you're going to consciously, consciously break a rule in the interest of something better happening in training, not in combat, in training? Because I think that those could be two different disciplinary mindsets. Okay. I, I, I won't talk too much about it. We have an ongoing event. We, we lost a, uh, a young uh, Lieutenant JG in our recon leaders course about a month ago in the surf zone don't have the autopsy back um it appears that he he was a he was a combat diver very good swimmer great great young man it's a tragic accident and it, it, it appears that he drowned in the surf zone just a few feet from the shore so he was a navy officer yeah going through our recon leaders course that is run by soi west they called me the next day and they to finish this course, and they had a, a swim, and they did some, and and asked could they continue the course, and I said yes. I didn't I didn't ask for a brief, but I believe I know the major who runs this course. I know the master gunnery sergeant, the the colonel who runs SOI West is a phenomenal leader, and to have the courage as a senior officer to to trust to use that little white book, FMFM one. I still have on my desk, FMFM1, my original right. one. I, I have the exact same book on my desk, and I've had it for 30 years. Yeah, it's right. The, the FMFM. Yeah, and mine's uh, signed by General Gray. Mine is not. <laughs> Just a few years ago, I, he uh, wrote something and signed it for me. Right. Well, mine's auto-penned, but not signed, actually, yeah. so that's a, that's a yeah. keeper. And my, my name's on the cover. Man, you used to put your name on I all your I have Lieutenant posts. Armstrong right in the front. Yep. Yeah. So to be able to trust and know that your people are doing... I tell this story because it happened to me. And that's why, let me tell you this story right quick. I, so after Desert Storm, I was, I was so I had a, a rifle platoon in Panama, Kilo Company, 3-6. And then I had 81's platoon the next year in Desert Storm, 3-6. We got back from Desert Storm in June or so, May, June. And the LAV battalion needed lieutenants. So me and Sparky Renforth went over to the LAV battalion and got platoons. And we had this like three-week school. Back then, you didn't have a LAV school out at, out at Pendleton like you do now, under SOI West now. The battalion ran it. Right. And, and Colonel Holcomb was the battalion commander, you know, the commandant's grandson. Sure. He's a retired uh, brigadier general. He was the battalion commander for, for Desert Storm. He was changing over within a few months there, that summer sometime. At the end of the, the three weeks, we had a little graduation. He call, asked, asked me to come see him in his office. I go in his office. He's like, hey, Dale, we have a debt uh, with 2-4. It leaves in December. I know you just got back. You, you've done two deployments. Do you, yeah, I'd like for you to take it. Would you give you a chance to go home, talk, talk to your wife? And I was like, I don't need to talk to my wife. I'm taking it, right? So I never was in – I was in, had an LAV platoon for 13 months, but I never was in the battalion. So I immediately took the platoon, we detached, and I was with 2-4, did, did the work up and deployed in December of, of, of 90, 91, I'm sorry, of 91, did a med flow. Sometime 
shortly after that, that summer, before he gave up command, he was still a battalion commander, 2-4, the battalion was up at Pickett. And I was scheduled to go up to Pickett the next week with the, with the platoon. But I was running Fox 5. You know Fox 5 that's out on 24, mm-hmm. that range, right? It used to have trees on it. I'll tell you this story. But now it's wide open. Nobody uses it much anymore. But it's a wide open pop-up range. It's a squad pop-up range. Okay. With an objective in about, I don't know, 200 meters long or so. Maybe 300. So I'm running, I'm, do, I'm doing squad attacks with my LAV platoon, right? And somewhere in the second or third run, a Marine gets up and he's charging, you know, we're teaching them to hold their rifles forward, finger off the trigger a whole bit, you know, as you charge forward. He got up and he shot down the line and he shot right through the Marine beside him, went in into his right bicep. It went in his flat jacket. It burned a streak across his chest and through his left arm because he was actually holding his rifle like he's supposed to. The corpsman freaked out, wouldn't treat him. I had to tear my T-shirt off and uh, stop the bleeding. We got him to the hospital. That Marine ended up deploying with us. He never really got the feeling back in his last two fingers, but I made him a driver. He was At the time, he was a scout, if I remember right. Well, they they shut the range down, separated all the Marines. They sent out, the division sent out an investigating officer, interviewed everybody, took a couple of hours. During that time, Colonel Holcomb, Lieutenant Colonel Holcomb kept, comes out to the range. And at the end of the, they basically said, okay, he comes up to me. He's like, all right, uh, we've done our investigation here. So he's kind of, because the battalion commander of 2-4, Colonel Connery was up at Pickett. He's like, uh, do you have more ammo, Dale? And I was like, yes, sir. He's like, were well, you going to do more run-throughs? Yes, sir. He's like, continued to train. He went over and got in his car and left. I will never forget that, right? And we did two or three more attacks that day after a Marine was shot on the range. The trust that he showed a young lieutenant that he really didn't even know, right? I'd mm-hmm. just gotten to his battalion and, and was attached to 2-4. Uh, I'll never forget. Pucker factor was per- pretty tight sure. during th- those run-throughs afterwards. You know, and the reason there's no trees on that range is because the the investigating officer, some I remember some heavy set lieutenant colonel that was up at division somewhere. One, part of his findings was the trees. There's too many trees, so the Marines couldn't see each other, which was not the case at all. So they cut all the trees off that range. Huh. As a base commander, I opened another range, Golf Twenty Eight that is about 1,000 meters by 500 meters of trees to do a live fire attack through, through the trees. I, I built that range for that reason. That's great. Oh, right. So and if you go down to on the other side where we bought, built Golf 36, the new Range 400-like range at Camp Lejeune, mm-hmm. Golf 28 is right, right up from that. Okay. It's, it's literally just a patch of woods about 1,000 meters by 1,000 meters or so. Uh, in order to do live fire attacks through the woods. That's a great story. I, so that's, that's two back-to-back stories about trust. Let, let's talk about that for a second, because I think one of the things I hear when I talk to leaders of all different ranks in the conduct of this podcast project is that trust is so essential between officers, between platoon commanders, platoon sergeants, company commanders, first sergeants. But trust is something that has to be built over time. You just can't walk into I, I recently had Sergeant Major Dan Reynolds on and we talked at length about the brand new platoon commander, brand new platoon sergeant relationship when that second lieutenant comes walking in the door from IOC. And he made the point that TBS produces 
I'm sorry, IOC produces one of the best products. When that lieutenant comes out of IOC, that is a good product hitting the fleet. He's like, but there's no trust established. And that's the very first thing that an officer needs to do when it comes into a platoon is like establish trust. And you just don't introduce yourself and assume that there's trust just because there's a, the, because you're wearing gold bars on your collar. And it's exactly the opposite. And you just discussed two stories about trust. Do you have any advice for young leaders? And you can take both sides of this or either or, but do you have any advice for how to establish trust between the officer and the enlisted at any rank, right? Second Lieutenant, platoon Sergeant, company commander, first Sergeant. Like what are some of the things that you need to do to establish that trust? You got to make NCOs special first off. And how do you do that? You got to spend time with them. You got to show that they're special. I got a couple of stories on that, but you give your platoon sergeant, just platoon sergeant mm-hmm. and your squad, squad leaders a mission. And, and this is what we're trying to accomplish. And then you got to have the guts to, to let them do it their way. And even if they, they do it in a way that you quite wouldn't have done, you kind of have a teeth sucker. If you get on to them about that, you're, you're, you're screwed. They'll never take initiative again if they, if they show that you don't trust them. So, I mean, it really does come down to that little white book, you know, mission commander's intent, and really believing it and allowing your subordinates. I mean, I tried, I talk about it every day. Yeah, every time I'm around my car, I got uh, 17 06 commands at training, 17. Wow. Yeah. Right. Right. And right off the bat, I'm like, hey, you, y'all are colonels. Uh, there's 15 colonels and two Navy captains, the two Navy captains that run the Corman schools. Y'all are, oh, set, y'all are colonels. Act like it. Fly those eagles. Right. You, I would almost be arrogant to be, tell the amphibious tractor school how to train Amtrackers or how to train ACV. Right. Or the Intel colonel down at the Intel school or the artillery colonel out at Fort Sill. Right. I'm like, you're the experts. You change what you need to change of your POI and I will sign it. I tr- right. I, now, I wouldn't want to be the two SOI and TBS COs right now because I know something about infantry. Right. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> right. But I really do try to 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 allow people underneath me to run. And I tell you what, no matter what nobody said, it will 99 out of a hundred, 999 out of a thousand will make you look good if you let them. You just got to have the courage to allow people. There's very, very, very few Marines that want to be, want to screw something up. Everybody wakes up in the morning to do the right thing for the most part. I totally agree with that. And I grew up in the same generation you did. So I went to TBS in 1990. So Maneuver Warfare, FMFM1, I, I grew up with that too. And I felt like when I left TBS, everybody believed in Maneuver Warfare and everybody was going to execute on mission and commander's intent. And, and I look back on my career, sir, and I don't know how much that was really truly adopted as a mindset in training over the... 25 years that I was, I was around. Yeah. Cause particularly in training, you, it's, you know, you, you, you have a chokehold on to make sure nothing gets screwed up. So. Right. You, so you get a good fit rep and you get promoted. That's human nature. Mm-hmm. It really takes talking to yourself on a regular basis to actually do what that little white book talks about. You know, I grew up, you know, 
the director of IOC was a staunch zealot believer, which was General John Kelly, mm-hmm. Major Major John Kelly at the time, a staunch believer in in FMFM one and maneuver warfare and warfare. Our, our doctrine, our it really is not doctrine. It's it's a philosophy, right? Of, of the way to think and the way to to lead and the way to operate. So I was brainwashed by John Kelly and all the captains at IOC, and I believed it, and I've tried to live it most of my career. Before when we were talking about um, how to establish that trust, you had a really great comment, which was, you know, you need to make the NCO special. And you said that you had a couple of stories about how to do that. Can we go back to that and, and share some stories for the, uh, the enlisted NCO set that listens to the podcast? And yeah, so uh, there's a picture. Sergeant Major McKenna has it. He was, his son was in my battalion, three, six. His son did both Afghanistan and Iraq, got out as a sergeant. He's a cop out in San Diego, I believe now. The change of command was a Friday afternoon, 1500. And at 1600, I went up to the barracks and asked for all the NCOs to come up. So there's a picture of somebody standing up on the catwalk. And I'm sitting on a camp stool with about 300 sergeants sergeant and corporals sitting around me. And I talked to those Marines for a couple hours that, that afternoon. My wife was pissed because we bought all this food and stuff up at the club, and I didn't show up. You were the incoming commander. Yeah. So this was this was the beginning of March of uh, of uh, two thousand four, and three six was a bit of a mess at the time. It's a long story why, but but I knew if I could get the NCOs on my side, we could turn this battalion around, and, and it was the easiest thing I ever did. And I would go to the barracks. And I would talk to. I would. We would have NCO meetings about once a month before we deployed to Afghanistan. And then we came home from Afghanistan and, and then did an eight-month workup and then went back to Iraq. So that battalion, we deployed with about 950 to Afghanistan, came home, and about 750 of that 950 went back to Iraq with us. That's why we were so good. We were together that whole time. And I had NCO meetings every time, I, me and Sergeant Major and corporals and sergeants. And I started doing that when I was, when I was a company commander in 38 under general favor. But then, you know, you, you, you let them bitch, you know, you've had to fix, if you, all you got to do is just show that you give a shit and fix a few things. For instance, washing machines and dryers. Mm-hmm. When we took over the barracks, there was a shitload of washing machines and dryers that didn't work in, in a 3-6 barracks. And now that I was the base commander, I know who they are. But I bought a half, a, a half gallon, a handle of Jack Daniels, and I went and found the guys who fix washing machines and dryers in uh, base maintenance guys. And within a week, I had a shitload of new washing machines and dryers, right? Not only fixed ones, but new ones, right? Getting involved, getting down dirty, right? Really caring about your Marine and doing and, and fixing a few. You, you can't fix it, everything, but if you just show that you, that you care and you can fix a few things, you'll make a million bucks and you get the NCOs on your side. Right. I concur with that a hundred percent. I'm gonna I'm gonna punctuate that comment, sir, by saying that I think there's a lot of I'm using my air quotes for listeners, take care of your Marines type mentality and people mix that up with taking care of Marines means I'm going to make their lives easier by maybe not holding them to a standard or or, wow. or right. And that is not the right way to take care of your Marines. Taking care of your Marines is like you said, sir, like 
don't make their lives so hard, right? They're working hard enough anyway. And if you can get in there and affect change that makes their lives and doing their jobs easier, that's a huge role of the officer. So to your point, walking around with a bottle of bourbon to get stuff done, I know what the outcome of that story was without even hearing the end of it, right? The Marines think you're a hero. Right. Jack Daniels is not bourbon. I'm sorry. You are correct. You, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a Tennessee squire, so I've... <laughs> yeah, and I should know. That, I should. That's that, that's that Yankee stuff. That bourbon up there in Kentucky. I, I, and I should. I should know better as a, as well. I am a bourbon fan. So anyway. Yeah. So yeah. Standards is back to standards. Yeah. Marines want standards. Mm-hmm. They want to be. They joined the Marine Corps because they want discipline and standards. Right. Right. Otherwise, they wouldn't have joined the Marine Corps. There's very few Marines. Right. We allow them not to to hold them to discipline and standards. Right. But that's what they joined the Marine Corps for. That's what they want. That didn't mean you got to be an asshole. You just hold the standards. Right. Right. I do it all the time. All the time. Yeah. Other day, you know, I'm walking up and there's a gunny coming out of the PX without his cover. I was like, gunny, what the what the hell are you doing? He's like, "Ah, sir, I forgot. You know, I was like, but you walked in without your cover. It was in his car. Yeah. I was like, are you shitting me? You're a gunnery sergeant Marine Corps. What are you doing? And then, you know, you know, and I, that's, that was it, right? But he felt he bad. He knew he was wrong. Right, right. right. You don't do that. That's, I mean. Well, and if you do it, that's just part of the risk you took, right? You're going to get your ass shoot if you get caught. And to your right. point, it may seem silly, right? Especially to listeners who are in a different service of the Marine Corps, but we take those little things really seriously. Right. And so. But I've broken too, though, right? I told right. you a story about. And, and you have to. The- Right, right, right. But, I, I, and you know who chewed my ass? Literally pushed me down and was berate, was my first, first sergeant. sergeant. Right, wore me out, mm-hmm. and I took it. I took it right because I knew I was wrong. Right, but that getting involved and caring, yeah. I, I think that's a huge takeaway for for leaders. And yeah, so I, I yeah. Here's another story. It's like when you're in command, right? Your family becomes your, but you, it takes a crap load of your time to do it right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you got to, you got to be in the, in, around the barracks on a Saturday afternoon. You got to be in the barracks on a Sunday morning at seven thirty, eight o'clock. And you'll find that 19 year old Lance Corporal that's, he's, he's so hungover. He can't even lift his head off the bed. He's probably got puke on his pillow, right? You need to get involved if not to, because he's underage drinking, obviously, but not to do that. But that's the same Marine that would blow his head off next week. Mm-hmm. There's something going on with him to be that screwed up, right? You, you, if you're around, you, the other Marines will start to tell you about this. And you, you can get involved in their lives and, and save their lives. Right. That's, that's engaged leadership. What we talk about it all the time, I don't, just don't see it being done a whole lot. Right. Because it takes a massive amount of your time. And it's the Sunday morning where you would be, you know, going to church with your family, but you're at the barracks. Mm-hmm. Or a s- Saturday afternoon where you would be going out to dinner with your family, but you're around the barracks. Uh, that kind of stuff don't happen as much as it should. Right. And that's what company commanders and battalion commanders and squadron commanders should be doing. I mean, I was down, I was on my motorcycle riding around the base a few years ago, and I'm down at French Creek, and I'm talking to three Marines sitting outside. And the base was completely screwed up, and we're, we're fixing that. Where the Marines live in one place, they work on the other side of the base, and their, their battalion and company leadership, platoon leadership, is in another part of the base. The MLG was a mess like that, right? And we're, we're fixing that. 
Like we're building a whole new French Creek area. Uh, the hurricane's the best thing that ever happened to Camp Lejeune. Got $3.7 billion. But I talked to these three Marines. I said, and their rooms, the mush rooms, we call them the two stories that down at French Creeks are just junk. I mean, mm-hmm. they're terrible. So I was like, I want to see your room. To, and I asked him, I'm like, when's the last time your platoon commander's been to your, your room? Sir, my platoon commander's never been to my room. How about your company commander? Oh, no, sir. What about your battalion commander? No, sir. Who is your battalion commander? I don't know, sir. Right? So that's a true story. Right? It's a sad story. And it wasn't an MLG unit. It was another another unit. Because French Creek was all mixed up with different units down there at the time. This was in 2017-18, before I went to Afghanistan. So engaged leadership takes time and a lot of time. It does. And and I think one of the things that's important about engaged leadership is and I'm going to use your barracks example with the Marine that's, you know, drank too much the night before. It's less about identifying the actual singular act and more about observing and mm-hmm. analyzing trend behavior. Yeah. Because that, that one Marine may have just overdone it one night. But if you're in those barracks over and over and over again and using your vignette, and you identify the same Marine like that all the time, that's where you start to identify the trend and say, this is a problem where the, a Marine may take this to the next level. Yep. Um, versus, hey, I, I saw this one time. I don't think it was a trend. And and that's an important leadership trait is being able to look at things and saying, like, is this an incident or is this a trend? You could right. you could apply that to maintenance. You could apply that to to any yeah. anything. Admin and all of that. And yep. I think that's a huge takeaway, sir. Thanks for thanks for surfacing that. And if as a battalion commander, if you're in the barracks on the weekends and stuff, guess what will start happening? Platoon commanders, company commanders, first sergeants platoon sergeants will start to show up because the old man's around, right? And old man's old man's finding that that all the furniture is broken, piled up in the game room, the lounge, right? They can't even, the lounges were all jacked up. And that, it was just a place to, to hold broken furniture when I took over 3-6, mm-hmm. right? We, we hauled off truckloads of broken furniture and cleaned up the lounges, right? And, and a place for Marines to sit, watch TV and, and so forth. That's showing that you give a shit. Hey, I... I, I talk about this too. Here's here's a vignette for you. Okay. And I, I learned this from Paul Lefebvre. Okay. He was my battalion commander when I was company commander for, for Kilo 3-8. He talked about the foundations of an infantry battalion. And, and I really don't care what unit you're in. Every You need to figure out what the foundations of your unit is. For an infantry battalion, it's comm, motor T, supply, the armory, field mess, and NBC back then, at the time. Six foundations. Right. And I had a piece of paper on my wall as a battalion commander and it had the six foundations down down the left side and one, two, three, four across the top with squares. And every week I had to put an X in the box beside the six foundations. And what did that mean? That mean that I, I visited those six foundations every week that we were in the rear. And those aren't the sexy things, right? Mm-hmm. It's easy to go out to vi- visit the platoons and companies, live fire and weapons and stuff. But the foundations of an infantry battalion, and you, you got to get, get down a motor T, crawl underneath the vehicles with the Marines, ask them what they do, go into the comm shop, go way in the back, not where the operators are, but where mm-hmm. the, the, the techs are. They're back there with glasses on, solder and shit, you know, the geeks in the back that are really smart, right? And sit down and, and spend time with them. Spend time in the armory with your armor and you start to get trends, right? Who's, who's doing what they're supposed to, who's not. So that, that takes time. 
You got to make time. You got to do pushaways, right? Push away from that damn computer mm-hmm. and, and get out where your Marines are. And at Camp Lejeune, those six foundations are all over the place for an infantry battalion back then. Okay. Right? They're all not together, right? You have to drive to the other side of the base to go to your comm shop or to go to your, your supplier, or your motor tail, and so forth. But I, re- I remember on several occasions on Friday, you know, Sergeant Major Thixton come in, hey, hey, sir, get your ass up. Let's go. You ain't got an X in the comm box, right? He would hold me account to that, right? So, you know, figure out what really makes your battalion or squadron work and spend time there. You can, you can put your priorities and your vision and your intent out, but if you don't show up with your time and schedule, then your Marines will pick up on it pretty fast. And you know that's that's a great tie back, sir, to to the comment you were making about trust between leaders. And if you're a new second lieutenant or you're a new company commander, and you sit down with your enlisted counterpart leader and say, "Here are my priorities or my the six foundations of a platoon commander can make six foundations of his platoon. You can right. or four or whatever he wants to make them. She wants to make them. Great." But I think you can immediately establish some trust by saying to your counterpart, here are my foundations or my priorities. I need you and I to hold each other accountable to putting that X in the box every single week. And if you yeah. start involving your counterparts in that, I think that would be a great trust builder if the two Absolutely. of you were aligned on that. And that's, that's a great vignette. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. I don't think you're going to have a tough time answering this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway, which is, I think... One of the things that's really hard to prepare yourself for doing the first time as a leader is that very first time you have to put your foot down and say, no, we're not doing that to somebody else. And I don't think those moments generally come at a time when you have time to think through them, right? It's on a range. It's, it's well, your vignette about the had some time to think about it, but sometimes those decisions about I need to decide to do A or B, somebody's recommending to do B, I don't feel right about it, so I'm going to say no and put my foot down. And you got to make that decision pretty quickly. Can you share a story to help prepare young leaders for the, that inevitable situation of having to say no and through sharing a personal experience, whether you saw it happen or you had to do it yourself? I'm pretty sure you could probably come up with both. Yeah. I'll tell a, uh, one from, from Al Kime, from combat, from Operation Steel Curtain. Okay. This battalion that I had, you know, we had fought for eight months in Afghanistan. Did an eight-month workup, went back to Iraq, and we we were on our third battalion-size operation. We did Operation Less Roll, which was September 11th of 2005, Operation Iron Fist, which is October of 5, and now this is November, and we're doing Steel Curtain. But Steel Curtain is a regimental-size operation. Ended up four and a half battalions were involved in this thing. Colonel Steve Davis, 2nd Marines, is regimental commander. One of my mentors since I, since I was back in 2-4 as a lieutenant. And we were on the drill field together for three years. And then he ends up being my regimental commander in combat. Phenomenal, phenomenal leader. He'd probably be the commandant of the Marine Corps if, right now if Haditha didn't happen. He got censored for Haditha, which was bullshit. But that's another story. Chris Starlin was the three. So we're doing a big... Uh, rock walk and we're talking about the operation how we're gonna we're gonna slip slip in behind the enemy all the way out to the syrian border and attack back from from west to east because they they expected us to to attack from east to west okay into them and two one bob altman came off the mew and he had two two of his rifle companies and his weapons company 
that was part of the attack, barred from the mute, put under Steve Davis. And they had this scheme of maneuver set up where, you know, they were going to come in and flank this way. And, and as we were attacking through uh, the town of Huseba, and I was like, oh, whoa, stop. No, we are not doing that. I'm like, I've been in, in, in a couple of gunfights. And when Marines went their first time that they get in a gunfight, they will fire every round they have in their, in their ammunition pouch. And you can't stop it. Fire uh, discipline happens over time, naturally, through NCOs and young lieutenants. But you cannot stop it in their first time. The first time they're shot at, they're going to shoot every bullet they have in their gun. Right? Tanks is going to start shooting. And I am not going to have a brand new unit out here on my flank attacking back towards me as a battalion. We're going to get online and we're going to take this town down methodically, street by street. And even then, we shot at each other. My guys shot at his, his battalion and his battalion shot at my battalion, even though we were still online. And I remember Colonel Davis looking at me like, you know, like, like who are you to tell me how we're going to do this? And then he, he thought about it a second and he says, we're going to do what Alfred said. Let's redo this. Right. But I was adamant that we I was not going to allow and we were not going to do that. And I was, the, you know, a subordinate in that time. And, and he was smart enough and savvy enough and a great leader to say, yeah, you're right. Let's recop. I haven't seen a, the new version of the fitness report in a very long time, but you'll you'll recall what I'm talking about. And for people who don't, I'm going to explain it. But we had the old blue fitness reports and you had that box for moral courage. Remember that? Yep. And it was supposed to only be marked in combat. Right. Was it, Do I have that right? The, yeah, I think yeah, so. Right. It was like yeah, NA. It's been a long time. Let, right, it's been a long time right. But I remember right. that. And I remember, you know, I think to myself, people display moral courage all the time. You don't have to be in combat to display moral courage. Right. In your case, you did. But I think there's cases in training where the subordinates, you know, I also feel like that vignette that you just shared is really important for people to understand who may be in a more senior leadership position to understand that you need to give your subordinates a platform for surfacing disagreements that doesn't make them feel like they're putting their career in jeopardy every time they open their mouth if they don't agree with you. Yeah. The thing about me and Steve Davis is we'd served together multiple times. Mm -hmm. That always helps. Right. right. One of my other podcasts with um, Vice Admiral Ron Boxel, he shared a story about when he was on a ship and the very first time that he and the other JGs and lieutenants had to deliver some bad news to the ship skipper underway, he got really upset and yelling and screaming at them about it. And he said, you know, the thing that I learned about that was that the minute the boss started yelling at me about something that was going wrong was the last time I was ever bringing the boss something that was going wrong. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. I just, it fosters such the wrong environment. So um, you didn't make that point. I'm kind of spinning it into that, but I, I do think that's an important leadership trait oh, to, to remember. So absolutely. How, how about a story? Okay. Cause you, you've, you've got a big personality, sir, right? Can you tell a story about a time that a subordinate came to you and challenged you when you were in charge? Yeah, well, a few times. I mean, I, the one guy who challenged me the most that I can think of is, is Chris O'Connor. And Chris was a company commander in Afghanistan for me. He had Kilo 3-6. And then he was my three in Iraq during those, those fights. And, and, and he's the one that come up with all these operations that we did. He's smart. But he would always disagree 
with me, challenged me, give me another way of looking at it. And, you know, and it kind of pissed me off t- at times. And I think, yeah, because of some bitch is right. Right. So and I should have thought of that. Right. I brought him to TBS and he was the warfighting six before uh, he went and took command of one uh, three out in Hawaii. He, uh, he commanded uh, RTR Paris Island as a colonel. Uh, he's out and uh, he's the chief of staff of Mar4S. He's, he's General Bellin's uh, chief now. Okay. Great, great American. So my sergeant major of 3-6, Scott Theakston, would challenge me, right? And, and he was always, usually always right, right? So you got to have to foster an environment where, where you, you welcome that. Mm-hmm. And, yell, and yelling at somebody or, or, or calling them stupid in public or something is, uh, is absolutely, you'll never get it again. Once That's you, right. Like once Admiral Boxel said, right. You'll yeah, never, yeah. you'll never hear it again. Yeah. So, okay. In a couple other podcasts, I've, I've asked the question this way. I'll ask it to you too. But, you know, as a society, we sort of revere the story of the Mavericks. And I say like how we even had a really popular movie with the main character named Maverick, right? So you know what I mean when I say Maverick, but in right. a way, a Maverick is somebody who, who does challenge, does think outside the box, does it. When you reflect back on your career, do you wish that you actually had more Chris O'Connors? Like, would you incur, like, do you wish you had more of them, even though he pissed you off? Sure. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, and I've had a few. Mike Samaroff was one battalion commander at the basic school, one of the smartest men I've ever met in my life, retired colonel, mm-hmm. commanded 25th Marines as a colonel. He, he would challenge, and he was always right, right, because he's so smart, just such a, such a thoughtful he would have been a fine general. He worked for, he pretty much ran the, the task force, the gender integration task force for, for, for General George Smith when he was running that. Okay. Mike was, was the main catalyst behind that. Just a brilliant man. So he, was, he would challenge you, right? And I mean, I'm, I, try, I, I think I listen to, I always, I've always had that one guy. I look back through my career, I can go through it and I can tell you that one guy. Right now, that one guy for me, is a guy named Jeff Connor, retired colonel. He's the deputy of training command. Okay. He commanded uh, 1-1, commanded SOI East, retired 30-year colonel, GS-15, you know, the executive. He's the deputy for uh, training command. He's that one guy right now at training command. That guy knows everything and is smart and thoughtful. I mean, all the colonels, those 17 colonels and, and, two, and cap, two Navy captains will, will tell you that Jeff Connor is the center of gravity for training command. So I can just go back through my, my career and, and tell you that one guy. When I had the warfighting lab, it was uh, Doug King, mm-hmm. who's still there. Camp Lejeune, a guy named Tony Scholar, the deputy for, for facilities. He's the civilian GS-15 for facilities. He's that, he was that guy. He was the center of gravity for, for the base, running that base. I mean, I could just go on and on. Yeah, you got to find. You just got to find who that is. You know, you got to. You should always be looking for that person that's going to help you, particularly when you're in command, and encouraging them. Yes, which is the opposite of you're stupid or berating right. them in a meeting or something like that. Absolutely. How about on the enlisted side? Did you ever see the Mavericks or the the challengers? I'll call them. Maybe that's a better way to call. It. On the enlisted side, did you ever see sergeant majors developing their subordinates to be? Your term, that guy? Yeah, Gunny Bodette, Billy Bodette, retired first sergeant. Talking about a maverick and talk about a warrior. 
was with me both in Afghanistan and Iraq, and I still stay. Hell, I, I went quail hunting with him uh, back in, in, in February this year. Talk to him all the time since we trade texts and emails on a regular basis, FaceTimes. He was bigger than life. Marines absolutely loved him. And you got to let a guy like that run. And I got some stories that he did. And he, when we were in Al-Qaim, he disappeared for like seven days. He come flying in on two, two helicopters with helicopters full of Gore-Tex and uh, knives. He, he went back to, to Takatum or somewhere way back and was being a company gunny and showed back up. And, I mean, it was to the point where I kept looking at, at uh, Thinkston every day. And I'm like, hey, we probably need to report this. I mean, he's been gone for five days now. <laughs> like we hadn't heard from him, right? He's like, one more day, sir. Hey, we probably need to report that we we're missing Gunny Bodette. One more day, sir. And then no shit. He comes in on two forty sixes and lands into his fob, and he he comes out with all this. He had gym equipment. He had Gore Tex. He, he had fleeces. And this is <laughs> mi- middle of the winter, two thousand five, right after uh, Iron Fist Steel Curtain. Yeah, but he's he's that guy that was bigger in life. So. Those characters like that, you got to foster and, and allow them to run, and right. which is sometimes hard. I love that story. That it goes back to something you said a, a few minutes ago, which was you know everybody wakes up in the morning wanting to do a great job in the Marine Corps. I mean that's just part of the transformation, right? I think we we beat people down a lot and dry, and somehow we we purge turn, them we, of we that. We turn them into shitbirds. That's right. That's right. Yeah, and and so I, I I'm, I'm saying that because I want to cue this back up back to FMF1, back to commander's intent and things like that. If you're in the middle of the leadership structure, I'm just going to make up, you're a battalion commander. You've got to let your company commanders and then those company commanders need to let those lieutenants and those sergeant majors need to let those first sergeants and those first sergeants need to let those platoon sergeants all figure their own thing out. Like issue your intent and then let them get the job done. And if you didn't like the way they did it, like that's a great after action, there's some learning. But every time you do that, every time you say, here's my intent to go out and execute, you're essentially putting your career on the line because something bad could happen. So up and down the chain of command, there has to be this radical transformation of risk acceptance. I don't know how that happens because I don't think it happened over 30 years in my time. The CO has to foster that. Which CO? Well, we're an organization of battalions and squadrons. Okay. And an infantry battalion is the battalion. Hey, if you got a screwed up battalion, it's because of one guy. The battalion commander. If you got a great battalion, it's usually because of one guy. Because all battalions have great Marines and and, and mediocre Marines. When you got a thousand nine hundred people in, in one outfit, it's the CO, and it's like that at all every time you move up, right? And you foster it. You know, I, I look back, I try to think, you know, because I was CO of the basic school. I've had a flag all eight years as a general, so I've been lucky. So I hadn't been, I hadn't really been a staff officer. I was. I was over in Iraq for about four months as a brand new one star. And then after that, I've, I've had a flag the whole time. So, and I've tried to foster that in every job I've had. And people will make you look good. If you give them rope, let them run. You act like this is the last job you're ever going to do. Easier said than done. But that's where it comes from. I agree. It, this isn't my podcast to tell my stories, but I do. I have a story exactly like that when I was in command. And I just said, like, I'm in the reserves and I'm, I'm going to treat this command as if it's right. my last. Right. And uh, I had tremendous success with that. And so I'll, I'll encourage people to adopt that mindset too. And I, I know there was push and pull between, geez, I, I'd hate to get relieved at the 15-year mark, but I do think there's there's a lot to be said for that. But 
you introduced an interesting topic. I want to ask the question carefully because I'm not soliciting a story, but I want to use it as a context. I'm going to assume that at some point in your career, when you were above, you were post battalion command, that at some point you were in charge of a unit at some level where somebody at the battalion command leadership, battalion commander leadership wasn't living up to expectations and something had to be done there. And so if that's true, if, if, if you have a vignette on that, I'm not asking for the actual story of the name, obviously, but can you identify a characteristic? Because when you're a battalion commander, like you're 15, 18 years in, you've got a lot of experience and you have proven yourself at a lot of different levels in order to be not only selected for lieutenant colonel, but battalion command, right. two different, right? Is there a common leadership trait that adds to the probability of failure at that level? Yeah, I, I haven't relieved any at battalion commanders, I, or I wasn't. So I was selected to take six Marines, and six weeks before I was taking command, General Conway switched me to the basic school. I had the one battalion commander, the old Samaroff, who was awesome. The captains were my center of gravity, mm-hmm. like 100, 110 captains at the basic school. If the captains took care of the students and everything was going to be good, so if I took care of the captains, everything would be good. So I hadn't had to relieve anybody above uh, at that level. You know, Dave Furness would be a great, you know, he had second division. Right. So I didn't, I didn't command the division. So as a general, I was the ADC where I had the five separate battalions. General Boudreaux gave me the five separate battalions that I was in charge of. So I was, it was like being a regimental commander, which was a great year particularly working for him, who's a wonderful Marine officer, Brian Boudreaux. Then I had a warfighting lab for two years, was running 2025. Then I went down, took the base for a year, then went to Afghanistan for a year uh, or nine months, but had was Task Force Southwest for about a year and a half doing the work up and on. And then back to the base, now up here. So, right. Is there, maybe you observed something that's worth sharing? Yeah. I mean... I see uh, some leaders, and I know who they are, right? But mm-hmm. I have a touch with the with the young captains and majors and lieutenant colonels that I still talk to on a regular basis. And I know a couple of colonels who are really good at smiling up and shitting down, mm-hmm. and, I, and I know who they are, right? That's what I hate to see. There's It's very few that it happens, but they're, they're out there. That's why I believe this 360 fit rep at the battalion command level that we're talking about, this taking the command climate uh, survey after battalion command, and that's part of your record before you get command or make colonel or get commands of colonel. You know, you can go back and look at that and say, hey, I don't know if we should make this guy commander again because his Marines hated his guts, right? right, right? Mm-hmm. So some of those tools that we're talking about for talent management, I think are good to because there are people who continue to move up that shouldn't because, right. of their, because of their leadership styles. And some of them get caught and some of them don't. And they're the toxic environment. They're still out there. And we need to figure out how to, how to stop that. And that's some of the stuff we're talking about as we move forward with our, our revamping our manpower system. I'm really glad to see that that's being seriously talked about. And now I, I can interject a little bit of my experience because I run my own company. And every single day at five o'clock, you know, air quotes, my biggest assets leave this company. And I hope to God they come back the next day, every, every single day. And in the Marine Corps, you don't have to worry about that because 
Everybody has a contract. They're, you know, they're coming back or they're going UA and they're in trouble. So uh, there is a huge component on the leadership side where, where you talk about the retention of your people that in the Marine Corps, we don't probably talk that much about. It sounds like it's great, it's great that it's getting talked about. And I call it the, if I was a company, and I'm giving advice now to young leaders who are listening, but if you were to stand in front of your company of Marines and you said, anybody who wants to leave this company and go join Bravo Company can do so right now with no recourse. You are free to leave. How many of your Marines would walk out of your formation? And if the answer is a lot, and I don't know what a lot is, but figure it right. out, right. you've got, you've got a smile up, shit down problem. Yep. And you better fix it. I just think that commands have the luxury of not having to retain their people because everybody's going to be there and you get some latitude to treat people like crap. If you were to look at it differently and said, how many of my Marines would leave if I let them? And a lot of them would. That's why that 360 idea is so great because yeah. I get a 360 degree review every single day at 5.01 PM. Right. Yep. They quit. If they don't like it, they just quit. I tell you that there's some of the suggestions we're talking about, about how to age the force and, and stuff. One of my, I've been talking about it is a 33% reenlistment vice 25. We've been doing 25% reenlistment since 1973. When, when we, the manpower model that we're under now, right? We bring in 38,000 every single year, 28,000 go out the back door every year, right? And we're talking about how to change that. In order to do that, I believe that the commandant's got to issue a mission letter to every battalion and squadron commander in the Marine Corps that you got a 33% reenlistment mission. Okay. Not, not, not a goal, right? In recruiting, you get a mission letter every month. And the other services, they get, they get quotas and goals. We don't mm -hmm. do quotas and goals. You know why? A quota and a goal is something you try to make. A mission is something you have to make. And that's the difference between our, our recruiting. I would do that to my battalion squadron commanders. And I would make it a mandatory fit rep bullet on how you did. Did you make your mission or did you not? And if you got a good command climate, you will have a high reenlistment rate. If you mm -hmm. have a shitty command climate, you will not have a high. And if, you, if that's going to be on your fit rep, you will get involved and you will spend time making sure that you get 33% of your Marines reenlist this year and 33 next year, your two years right. in command. That's the only way I, I, I know how to do this, right? Just saying it and we're going to try is not going to work. You got to have leaders get involved and, it start, and it's got to be at the battalion and squadron command level, I believe. And over time, we would have to bring in less Marines on the front end. So you need, we'll need less recruiters over time. You will need less drill instructors and you will need less combat instructors in my, my command. So therefore, more NCOs and staff NCOs would stay in the fleet. Right to to do the squad leaders in the infantry would would be a sergeant or a fire team leaders would be a sergeant squad leaders would be a staff sergeant and platoon commander platoon sergeants would be gunnies that's the the model we're trying to look at so we need to be able to keep more in the fleet to do that and in order to do that we got to reenlist more aged force and how to do that is this thirty three percent that'd be one way so we're looking at ways uh, and I was talking to Jimmy Glenn Major General Jimmy Glenn who's getting ready to uh he's nominated to come take manpower and he's never worked in manpower he was picked for that reason we need an outside thinker 
to come in. And he's kind of been out of the Marine Corps for the last two years, right? He's, he's commanded MARSOC, which is a whole different organization. So mm-hmm. I think I think it's a brilliant pick by the commandant to bring in, you know, a disruptor to if we're going to change our manpower model. It's going right. to be hard. But we've been using the same manpower model essentially since 1973, 49 years. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that the Marine Corps is not going to get it right the very first time. They'll fine-tune it over time. But Absolutely. It's Absolutely. sort of like modifying the physical fitness test, right? right. I, I mean, like it not, or the combat fitness test is a better example, right? I mean, you modify it, you try it out, you run we're, it, you see what's we're happening. Doing, we're doing that again, too. We're still looking at redoing the PT test, yeah. But yeah, a lot of changes going on. But uh, back to what you said, you know, every day, you know, you get, your people can leave your, your business, uh, your company, if they want to. But if people are happy, they're challenged, they feel empowered, we can do the a higher reenlistment than we've always done. But it, it's got to be put on the commander and, and it's going to come down to command climate. I could not agree with you more because the analogy here is I'm the commanding officer of this company. And when people quit, sometimes it's going to happen, right? People just want more pay or something or they're moving. But sometimes if people are just quitting because they don't like working here, that's my command climate. That's how I know. But on a previous episode with General Bellin, we had a conversation where he enlightened me about a statistic, and I'm going to repeat it for you and see see what your comment on it is. He said that, and I may get the numbers a little bit wrong, but he said, it takes 6,000 corporals to make one meritorious sergeant. In other words, you're, you're evaluating, and then there is a meritorious sergeant that comes out of it. He said, so, so think about how good that sergeant is to get a meritorious promotion. And then he said, I have more meritoriously promoted sergeants in the individual ready reserve, not doing anything in the Marine Corps, just in the IRR, than the entire Marine Corps has on active duty. Yeah, because they all get out. Because they all get out. So the question is, how is it that somebody that is the one of 6,000 that becomes a meritorious sergeant, right? That person is motivated, you know, loves the cause, loves being a Marine, and then decides to get out. What's causing that? I don't know if you could answer it. We're not, but I, we're not challenging them. You know, we went to 202K in about 18 months, right? For when we, we gave ourselves three years to get to 202K, and we did it in half the time. We were at combat. We were given bonuses in, in combat that they didn't have to pay tax, tax on. But we were re-enlisting up, upwards of 33, uh, 36%, over 33 at the time. This is in 2005 and six. They were challenged. They, we were at war, and they believed in what we were doing, so they stayed in. How do you do that today in peacetime? How do you challenge Marines and, and have a command climate where they want to stay, where they really would not look to, to get out, go to college, make more money, and all those things, that they love the Corps that much they would stay? How do we do that, right? That's, the, that's what we're talking about. How do, you, how do you keep that? I mean, my son was one of those. My son did uh, four and a half years in the Marine Corps. And he got out as a sergeant. You know, he, he was, uh, I don't think he got married to a sergeant. He got married to a corporal. He was a Marine 1-5, did a deployment to Australia, and then he did a deployment at 31st Mew, and then he was uh, Fred Fredrickson's PSD in Iraq. He did a, a third deployment, and then he got out. He's, you know, 5'10", 220, you know, could, could squat 400 pounds, you know, run a marathon. I mean, he's stud. How do you keep that guy in the Marine Corps? Can you answer that for me? It's the climate of the, at the battalion and below. Good battalions have higher reenlistment. That's, I'm back to why I would make it a fit rep bullet. 
Mm-hmm. I would make it because you, if you got a battalion who's got high reenlistment, you got happy Marines that want to stay in the Marine Corps, then that's a good battalion commander. That's a good squadron commander. I agree. I don't know if I can answer the question. I can guess, but I think it's being able to do the things that Marines joined the Marine Corps to do. Right. And you know what? It's not, it's not swabbing the deck and sweeping the parking lot and all that. It's going out to the field. It's training. Right. Even though, even though that stuff can be really hard, I don't think that leaders should be trying to get a good command climate and a good post battalion survey. I'll call it because PT was easy or they didn't do hikes or that's not, that's not the right. Well, they, 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 they won't get, they won't get good rates if they're doing that. So if, if you're doing good, hard, realistic, dangerous, but mm-hmm. safe training, right. right. That those can go together. Right. We prove it every day at IOC. Some of the best training that happens in the Marine Corps happens at IOC and we do it safely month after month, year after year. Those captains that run IOC are some of the best captains in the Marine Corps. And they do hard, difficult, dangerous training every single cycle safely. And it can be done. And Marines love that. And that's why they join. I agree. And that goes back to the right assessing risk. How do you do dangerous training safely? Same with keeping pilots, right? When pilots are only getting a few hours a month, they get out. That ain't what they join for. They join right. to fly, fly airplanes. And we got a problem with our, particularly our TAC air pilots and keeping enough and not having enough, not making enough. We, we got to fix that. Well, me and uh, General Imes talked about it just uh, yesterday or day before yesterday. We, you know, that's one of the issues that. It's a, it's, a, it's a problem that has to be addressed. And how do you keep those pilots that want to stay in the Marine Corps and continue to fly and not go work for FedEx? I think I have the answer. Give them more flight hours. Right. It's easier said than done. With this, particularly with this, this new airplane, until we, you know, until we, the, the 35 is, is expensive. Right. But must, we must do it. Mm-hmm. It is the next airplane. We have to replace the F-18. With the F thirty five, at the same time we got to be start moving towards unmanned, right? And manned, unmanned, manned teaming. I mean, we see today that an F thirty five, and he has three F thirty fives that are unmanned following him in into combat, right? I always believe there's there's going to be a man in the loop, but yeah, we got to start thinking that way. I don't know, right? There's always going to be a man in the loop. I'll use an example. Yesterday, I was driving somewhere. I I live in Alexandria, Virginia. It's a it's a grid city with traffic lights and stop signs and traffic. And my friend was driving and he said, I said, take a left here. He goes, no, Waze is telling me to go this way. I said, well, Waze doesn't know that that traffic light is red ahead of you. And that's a minute and a half wait. Take a left here. You're going to skip it. There's always going to be a man in the loop or a woman or a human being in the loop. I I agree with that. I I do hope that there is some progress made on that 360 degree report. And I come back to that comment that you made, which, which I really like about, you know, smiling up and shitting down because I, I bore witness to that all the time, many times in my career, yep. unfortunately. I think that if you're a battalion commander and you're not communicating your commander's intent and then watching your commanders execute on that, and I'm a commander and you're not letting me, you're not giving me any freedom to do it my way, or in, I'm not going to like it. I'm not yep. going to like your command. I'm not going to like you as a commanding officer yep. because he's probably wishing he was getting it from the regimental commander, but he's not giving it to me. And I'm probably not going to say glowing remarks about him. Right. And there's always going to be some percentage of disgruntled people. And you're going to have the Marine Corps is going to have to figure out a way to filter some of those things out. But but it's the trend analysis that we talked about about a half hour ago, like observing trends in your command. So 
I'm hopeful that 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 takes place. How about you mentioned that you've got the 17, the 15 and two at the 06 level and command there. How are you setting the conditions for their success to conduct dangerous but safe and meaningful training that appeals to the Marines? Because they're still all going through their transformation, essentially, right? They're going through. So you're doing it at TBS and IOC. But how are you setting the conditions for success to say it like engineering school or? We're also doing it at IMC, the Infantry Marine course. We, the 14-week enlisted course has changed drastically. Engineer school, uh, Gary McCullough has totally revamped the POI where no classes are taught bigger than 13 Marines, a squad. Uh, no classes at IMC are taught bigger than 14, a squad. So a sergeant or staff sergeant is in charge of a squad and he teaches the whole 14 weeks, teaches everything. It's going to, it's going to, that's the secret sauce of that Marine coming out of the, it's vastly different than the eight week BIM basic infantry Marine course. Vastly different. We got all these big classrooms, 300 man classrooms that we aren't using, right? Because uh, we're, nothing's being taught above 14 Marines. Uh, Gary McCullough did the same thing in engineering school and some of the other, and I'm, again, I'm allowing those colonels to change anything they want to that they believe they were hired. The Marine Corps hired them, picked them to command those schools for a reason. They're the experts. I would be an arrogant commander if I thought I could tell engineer school or artillery school or the other ones how to do, how they should train their Marines. They know, and their instructors under them know. They're the experts. So I believe I'm allowing that through commander's intent, and I talk about it, right? And then I visit, right? I stay in a metal tube, an aluminum tube. You know, I'm in an airplane you know, three weeks out of, out of the month going somewhere to visit those, those 17. And then I have 20 command select lieutenant colonels under those, those colonels. So I need to know who they are. And I, I visit them, have dinner with them. But that's what I, that's the only thing I do in this job is go visit those 17 colonels, which right. takes all of my time. Right. Uh, and to do it, do it right. To touch a man's soul, touch a Marine soul, you have to be present. You can't do it through video. You have to do it in real life. Walking around leadership. We talk about walking around leadership. We just don't, there are not a lot of people that do it. You have to do pushaways. You got to push away from that computer and you got to get out and you got to go touch Marine souls on a, on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Like what is, you know, that's the, the, the foundations, right? You got to get out and touch them. And this job I'm in now, that means I got to be in an airplane flying somewhere to touch Marine, marine souls. Right. Uh, but there's more to it than just getting in an airplane. What you're talking about is being a social creature. Like you have developed great social skills to be able to, it's, you get off that plane at some point and now you're at dinner with your commanders and you're talking to them. So now you're in the social game, which is not really a leadership trait or principle that we talk about, but social skills are so important in terms of leadership. Do you have any thoughts on the, the great social skills that you have probably developed over time? Maybe- you were inherently born with them or raised with them, but you de- you have developed them over time. Any thoughts on how to develop your your social skills in terms of leadership? I just I spend time with them. I tell stories. You know, I listen to their problems. Try to fix a, th- a, th- a thing or two. Hell, I don't know. It's just I think you I think you either got it or you don't. I don't. I don't. Yeah. It's just you know. I don't think you can change your personality uh, a whole lot. You, you probably do develop different social skills, different leadership traits and stuff over time. I've been blessed that I've been in command a lot. I've been a staff officer very few times. 
I mean, I was a, a three of a battalion down at Paris Island for about eight months. I was a three of an infantry battalion for about nine months. I was an XO in combat of a battalion, Royal Mortensen, my battalion commander, who I love to death, commanded the basic school also before me. I was 13 months as an XO. I was, I was the current future OPSO for 11 months in, in the Pentagon one time. I mean, I, I haven't been a staff. I haven't been on my joint job. I was at IDA, the Institute for Defense Analyses, and it was the best joint job ever. And I spent 14 months in Afghanistan of that 20, 24 okay. months. Okay. Right? So, so I've been lucky. So I've had a lot of time to develop and, and, and hone what you're talking about, I guess. And it, right. So no, ch- no chance I could talk you out of retirement, huh? No. No, it's time for me. I'm old. It's time for me to go. I've been a G, me and my wife, Jennifer, has been a geo batching it for a good while. You know, she went back and started her own business kind of and, and work, working, work, you know, uh, we bought a house just a couple months ago down in Alpharetta, Georgia. So it's time for me to, to get out of the way and let young guys move up and take over. So, yeah, I think you're leaving some disappointed people in your wake, but I totally understand. Yeah. yeah. You said something that I want to highlight a little bit because you said like you either got it or you don't. I agree with that, but I think the people that don't have it can develop it a little bit, maybe not to the point that that you've developed it. But one of the things that you said was you sit around, and you tell stories. I think sit, the ability to sit around and tell stories and humanize yourself and make yourself approachable and and just and be a relatable leader to your junior subordinates, whether they're enlisted or officers, being a relatable person through the use of stories. You've just spent an hour and a half telling stories. You're a natural storyteller. I think that's a huge leadership skill that can be developed, the ability to relate to others that you're commanding and leading through the use of stories and being a relatable person. Because then when you're making decisions and you're telling people yes or no, or you're giving them your guides or your commander's intent, they can start to get this little bit of a window inside of how you think. Mm -hmm. I think it's really important for people to understand how you think. Absolutely. So that leads me to my question. Do you have a mechanism that you've used over your career? If you're giving people's commander's intent and guidance, they've got to understand a little bit about how you think in order to probably select the best course of action. Absolutely. Tips there? Yes. I was a huge proponent of the TDG back when I was a company commander. Uh, Yeah. Doing TDG. Sand table. Yeah. And we did, we would literally get five radios, me and, or six radios. XO would be part of it too. Me and the four lieutenant, the four platoon commanders, XO and me, and go to uh, six different points on the big field down there at Camp Lejeune and then do a TDG over the radio. That's hard. And they'd be able to convey what you, you're doing, what your, what your answer. So we'd all spend 10 minutes, do our TDG, come up with our plan. And I'd say, okay, uh, Lieutenant Marita, go right over the radio and everybody listen and then you'd get together and what did he say what did he do did he communicate well i mean i got a story gasket i'm saying his name wrong he was a lieutenant one of my lieutenants my company commander for for a short time we're doing me and bill journey we're uh we're on the radio and he's talking about running the rabbits around this way and because we're 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 the op for against the mute this landing and Paul Favors, the time commander, he gets on the, you know, he's from Connecticut, right? He's like, I don't know what y'all two rednecks just said, but y'all just do it, right? Because we're, because <laughs> <laughs> right? we're, we're communicating because we're the same people, me, me and Bill Journey, right? And, but that, during that op, I remember I'm telling one of my lieutenants, I said, I need you to go above the enemy that we're attacking. Go, and I'm talking about going north. 
right? Okay. And I'm saying go above. And and his platoon sergeant said, yeah, he was looking up in the air, thinking about above, above. What's he, what the hell is he talking about? My lack of communication and his lack of, of being around me long enough, it was very early. He had just become a platoon commander, and I wasn't communicating clearly to him over the radio. When I was saying go above the enemy and, and attack, and get around them, right? That's what I was trying to do. And he thought I meant go up in the air above, which I really meant north. And then to, to understand that it was my fault as a, as a company commander, communicating to my lieutenant that, that didn't get what I was saying, and then talk about that, right? So the more you do that kind of stuff and have real after actions where you, real hot washes where you really, and we're not near as good in the grunts, the infantry, as the, the pilots are. They, they're, they're brutal in their after actions, right? And we've learned, I think, we're getting better. You know, and, and this force-on-force force gear, this I-test gear that we, we're buying, uh, the, the new version, is a technological tool to allow you to do really, really good after actions. Because you, yeah, you can't lie, right? You, it's on film and it's, it's all recorded and, you know, the electronics tell you what you actually did. When you, when you start to say, well, so, uh, let's play that back. It's like game film. Right. It's like watching like football players, football teams do. So... And the more time you spend with your subordinates, and, and a great tool in the old days was the TDG. I, I believe it's still a great tool to use to see how they think and how and they see how you think. I agree with you. I remember they would come back, they would come out in the back of the Marine Corps Gazette every single month, and they were basic company level. And you could do them, sit down with your Marines out in the field and do them and yeah. say, hey, you got five minutes to do this. I remember doing them at TBS. We, yeah. we would have this so big still, sand table set still, up. They and, still do. You probably knew him because I think you were probably there at the same time. Larry Zell was my company commander when I was at TBS and had the big sand table. And I remember he was like, if you want to come in and do a TDG, you come in, you give yourself five minutes, you write the thing on the card, put it in, and, and I'll, I'll read it and debrief it. And I remember he came down to my room one night because I had done one. And he said, hey, let's go down to the sand table. He and I together, he was like, this, I, get, I get what you were trying to do. In reality, here's how I would have done it. And he just taught me right there on the spot. Ten minutes. Hey, that's that's engaged. That's engaged leadership right there. I, I thought so, I thought so too. Right now, I don't know if I would have ever liked to be a company commander for Larry Zell, but I really liked being a student at TBS for right. Larry Zell because he just he. This goes back to he showed an interest in me. Right. He took the time. It's back, that's back to your barracks thing. He took the time. Yeah. It was seven or eight o'clock at night. He came down to my room, so that was personal family time. He was not home with his wife. Right. And now I'm telling you that story 34 years later. Yep. So that was obviously impactful to me. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's great. The gear that's coming in that's going to let people evaluate. And you mentioned the pilots before. And for people who aren't in the aviation community, I, I know this part about it. I think once a week, there's some sort of rhythm to this. But they sit down in a room and they gossip about every single pilot in the command, to include the squadron commander. Yeah. And I didn't understand why. And and when it was explained to me, they said, because we need to understand what's going on in that person, that human being's head, because they're going to get behind a stick. So if somebody's having a problem with their wife mm -hmm. or somebody's, you know, whatever it is, we are constantly talking about the emotional state of every single person that's going to drive a stick in our, in our squadron. And we talk about everything. Yeah. That's and I was true. like, wow, yeah. we don't do anything like that in the, maybe because the consequences aren't so grave, but- before I turn it over to you for any platform that you want to talk about, we start to wrap up here. We've got about 15 minutes left. I, I want to ask you one last question. When you go back in 
looking over your career of, what are you at, 36 years now, sir? 38? 34 active as an officer. Okay. So as you look back over your 35-ish years and you just, you look back at yourself, did you do anything in your career that you would say, I'd really like a do-over on that? I, I may have made a mistake there. Or if I had the opportunity to do it again, I would have chosen differently. And if you answer that in the context of sharing something that would be valuable to a young leader that you look back on and say, eh, I, I would take a do-over on that. I gave an order to my sniper platoon as we were going into uh, Steel Curtain. We're getting hammered, and, and the enemy is falling back, and we're attacking from east to west in the town of Sada in al region. And they got booby traps and IEDs set up, and they've got fallback positions, and there was a, a, a large hill to the south of the town. And I knew that that hill was IED'd. But I needed to get my snipers up there where they could, get, they could pick them off as they fell back across the streets. So I pushed the sniper platoon up there, the lead vehicle. Corporal Stalby was driving, hit an IED, and he was killed instantly. I needed those snipers up there, and it worked. Mm -hmm. But I got a Marine killed doing it. And I wished I, and, and four others wounded, including the platoon commander, was wounded in that IED strike. He was in the lead vehicle. So you, you have those moments, and you got to come to grips with them. Guys, and, and that's a decision in combat that you wish you could do it differently but you can't, and you can't get that back. And I work for one of the best generals I've, I know, and has killed a lot of bad people, right? Commander Delta Force, that's when I first mm -hmm. met him, when he was CO of Delta Force when I was a battalion commander. was his squadron commander out there with us out in Al-Qaeda. And you know what? I, I killed a bunch of Afghan police by mistake at night, hit them with a, with a 30 millimeter. And he called me, right, a couple of times the week after, just checking on me. Like, how are you mm -hmm. doing, right? Because Do I made a mistake. Owned up to it, right? And we paid the salation payments and all that, everything that you do. And you wish you could get those, those strikes back, but you can't. You got to learn to live with them. You got to read and study about combat before you go into combat. I mean, you know, Grossman's books, uh, Melantis, uh, what it's like to go to war. You know, he wrote uh, Matterhorn, you know, Fields of Fire. The I mean, just there's multiple books that, that young officers need to be reading and thinking about the decisions that have to be made in combat and come to grips with it before you go. The more you prepare for that, the better you'll do mentally, I think, uh, over time. So there's some, right. some of those decisions I wish I could take back. I can tell that's a very painful topic yeah. to ask, but I... I want to ask one more question, and it's okay to just move on if you want, but those were all very unfortunate circumstances. Is there anything that you look and say, like, if I had known this, or I had just had better situational awareness, or if I just waited, maybe some of those things would be different? Yeah. I sense no, because I, I feel like you, you were resolute in your decision, and it was just unfortunate, but I'm just wondering for people learning and doing, like you said, like imagining yourself in combat. Mm -hmm. One of the ways people imagine themselves in combat is hearing stories from people. Yeah, there's times when... I was probably too aggressive that if I'd have been more measured, then maybe that Marine wouldn't have died. There's others that you just, that's why I never allowed my leaders underneath to say, I'm bringing everybody home. Do not say that. In real combat, I don't give a crap how good you are, how well you're trained. You're not going to bring everybody home. Right. People die in combat. 
So when you hear leaders say, you know, my goal is to bring everybody home, that is, no, you don't say that. That is not your goal. Your goal is to accomplish your mission and take care of your Marines as best as you can. But I don't give a shit how, how good you are. Marines will die in combat under your command. And you got to, you got to think about that. You got to study about it. And you got to come to grips with that before you go. That is such a great comment to make for, for young leaders to understand promising something that you don't have any control over can do emotional damage to yourself and setting, setting the expectations that there's a mission to do. And we may take casualties and preparing those young leaders for saying, you're going to experience casualties in combat, but you have to accomplish the mission. Medical attention to wounded people is not the mission. Your mission is to fight and then you, you stop the red stuff later. I think that's really important for people to think through. I agree with you. And I'd like to punctuate your comment that people need to sit and imagine themselves in situations like reading Matterhorn. I found myself able to imagine that just because the book is so well-written and descriptive. And I felt like this is something people need to imagine themselves being in before they get there so they can think through it and almost pre-vision it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important thing for people to do before they, they do go into combat. And you listed some really great books there. With the Old Breeds, another great one that really tells the story about up close and personal combat, Sledge's book. I'm going to put those down in the description for people who are listening to this in the car so they can go back and, and get it. I got one more quick one for you. I think one of the most likely and frankly, immediate and challenging leadership moments in a young officer, a young leader, officer enlisted, doesn't matter, that they'll face with high probability of facing this issue is, is hazing. I personally remain unconvinced that we have totally purged hazing from the military. I also hear of civilian hazing incidents, like open up the newspaper anytime the college year is starting and fraternities are hazing. And what can you share with junior leaders to help them overcome the struggle of, this is old school, this is how we've always done it, or this is what my seniors did to me when I was young, so I'm going to do it to other people. Any helpful commentary there, yeah, sir? Yeah, I mean, my son talked about that, right? as a NCO and how he hated it, right? And he's a tough guy. He's a tough guy. Big, mm -hmm. big kid. A lot thicker than I am. Great Marine. And he talked about not hazing and really getting involved in the Marines' lives, vice hazing them, right? Because there's very few Marines that want to be a shitbird, right? Right. We turn them into shitbirds, and then they spiral down, and then some young corporal or sergeant starts to haze them or try to correct them physically, and then they get in trouble and we lose a good sergeant or corporal. So you lose Marines on both sides of hazing. You lose the, the Marine that has turned into a shitbird and you, you lose the good NCO that's trying to fix him. Because you got to talk to, you got to spend time with NCOs. As a, mm -hmm. my, my number one advice to a battalion commander, taking an infantry battalion in particular, is to make the NCOs of that, that battalion special. And the way you do that is you give them a, a platform. I mean, me and Thigston used to go buy, you know, a couple cases of Budweiser and in the Thunderdome behind 10th Marines, we would meet there. It's all corporals and sergeants and me and Thigston. And that's it. Nobody else allowed. And we'd pass out a, a beer to everybody and we'd sit there and, and talk. And then the last corporals would look and say, hey, man, I want to be a corporal because I can be part of that group. When a corporal got promoted, I mean, when a, when a, uh, a lance corporal got promoted to corporal or a corporal to sergeant, I made them read the NCO creed out loud after they repent in, mm -hmm. in formation. So you had to read the NCO creed. And you know what they would start to do? You'd hand them the card. 
they would hold it down and they memorized it. That became kind of a thing in 3-6. You wasn't a real NCO unless you memorized the NCO creed. Yeah. You know, that was all done by them, right? But have your NCOs read the NCO creed when they get promoted. Uh, you just, just got to find little ways to make NCO special and your unit will be much better. Yeah, I, I think it goes back to you were just talking about the environment, the the command climate, and I'm going to go back to my civilian life here. When I, when I hire a new employee to come in here, we have an orientation and onboarding. We have like cupcakes and they get swag with the, the company name on it. They get a brand new laptop. We're bringing them in and they're, they're going to lunch with everybody and they're getting it over. Right? We are bringing them into our family. Right. But, but in the Marine Corps, when I see a new join come in, all of a sudden it's like, they're treated like shit yeah. right. by, by everybody. And I kind of wonder, like, what happens if we, if we inverted that? What happened is if the very first time they're standing there with that plastic black envelope and their alphas and they're in the first sergeant's office, and the first sergeant, instead of yelling at him or screaming, says, like, welcome to the family. Yeah. This is Corporal so-and-so. He's going to make sure you're settled in. And There's Marines out there that do that. I, I know there are. We need more of them. We got to talk about it more. Yeah. Thank you for that. What I normally do is I, I do a recap of the program here, but before I do that, I would just like to give you the platform to talk about anything that you're passionate about that has nothing to do with the questions or anything, the, the interview, whether it's a, a passion project or a plea for something or, or anything that you just want to air, sir. The platform is yours. Well, I, I, the only thing I'd say is I, I took this job and the commandant has allowed me to change how we're making infantrymen. So he's allowed us to put standards on our enlisted entry. The first thing I told the two COs, the two SOIs when I took over is here's your basic commander's intent. We're going to make enlisted infantrymen closer to infantry officers. We've always made great infantry officers. We're going to make better enlisted infantrymen. And the way we're going to do that is, is they'd already started it with the 14 weeks and a single NCO or staff NCO teaches everything, which is really the secret sauce to this this new infantry, but we're going to put standards on our enlisted infantry that we've never had. So he's allowed us to do first class PFT, CFT, intermediate level swim. You got to pass the sweat chair, the dunker, the dunker chair. Mm -hmm. You got to pass the O course. You got to pass an endurance course, and you got to pass the fifteen mile hike. And you got to have a ninety GT vice and eighty now to be a, a, an enlisted infantryman. That's going to make a vastly different infantry battalion over time mm -hmm. you're not going to have the 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 young marine that, that can't keep up and falls out and starts to get hazed and turns into a shit bird and does pot and all the other stuff like we talked about earlier because we're putting some pretty pretty tough standards to be an infantryman and general Berger has allowed that and that's what it's going to take to have a distributed force to have smaller mm -hmm. units you know out distributed across the battlefield like we're talking about doing it's a different Marine than we've had in the past in, in the grunts. I, and I'm uh, the most proud as I'm leaving the Corps here in, a, in, a, in another year that, that we're moving in that direction. That's fantastic. I think the old dumb grunt days are over because they can't be dumb. Nope. Not dumb. I'm using my air quotes, right. but you know, the joke. Right. I think we have to have this, the best and the brightest on the ground as the 0311. Yep because they're going to be making decisions that we've never asked them to make before. And we can do it. We can, we can. So we were, we went down and, and, and spent some time with the Ranger regiment. Uh, you know, that's about 3,500 Marines in the Ranger regiment. And then they have standards to be a Ranger. And if you can't make mm -hmm. the standards, you go to the army. They say that you go back to the army, uh, which is a little weird. Right. But I think we can make a, a 17 or 18,000 
infantry Marines that are much more elite than we've had in the past. Uh, we've had great Marine, and and I'm telling you, we we are not struggling to get. We are not dropping. And one of the reasons we're not dropping a lot of Marines is because of that corp, that sergeant and that staff sergeant who's in charge of those 14 Marines, they become their, their family. They become their kids. And they make sure during that, that 14 weeks that that Marine can pass all of those standards. That's the secret sauce. It's requiring 80 extra NCOs and staff NCOs that we didn't have before. And the Commandant gave that to us, 40 in East and 40 West. It's, it's taking another 77 support personnel, too. So it's more expensive to do what we're talking about. But that's what is required for the future. And, right. and he's allowing us to do that. So that's, that's a, and I'm uh, proud of what's happening as I leave the Corps here in another year or so and give, give it off to somebody else. Well, I think that legacy will, will be lasting a very long time because you're, you're initiating that change in the Marine Corps, which I think is going to be around for a while. And Well, just, just not me, but uh, right. you know, I just happen to be in charge yet. But, and we got buy-in and belief from, from uh, our, our NCOs, staff NCOs, and young officers that are, that are out there doing this. That's great. So quick recap, I like to do this before we, we, we say goodbye, see if anything surfaces real quick, but uh, General Dale Alford started out as somebody who didn't want to go to college in West Georgia, ended up going to a party and making some fraternity brother friends and decided that he was going to enlist, uh, which he did, boot camp, and then went to PLC juniors and seniors, and then was finally commissioned and went to the basic school in 1988. The first question we talked about was his aha moment, and he talked about being at IOC and went to to three six when everybody wanted to be in Eighth Marines. And his first uh, interesting vignette was when he sustained an injury to his hand when the the TC hatch on the Amtrak came down and resulted in him taking some personal decisions about his medical condition and solving the problem of the pin in his hands, and ended up um, seeing the battalion commander for an NJP, which was an amusing story. We went on to have a conversation about common sense and rules and how sometimes the rules don't always make sense. And sometimes the rules are just a guide and you need to use your own common sense to decide when you need to operate in and when it's appropriate to do that. And then you made a point, sir, about how when you get to the O5 level, you really need to act like you don't have a career anymore and how that's way easier said than done, but that that set the condition for you to have some very successful commands by just establishing that mindset yourself. Went on to talk about your time with Kilo 38 and um, Lieutenant Colonel at the time, Lefebvre. We talked about how your first sergeant didn't like your decision to and you got your ass chewed and that ended up developing into a conversation that you and I had about the trust, the trust factor that exists between leaders. You told a quick story about how there was a recent tragedy out at the leaders recon course. They asked if they could continue the course. You said yes, because you had complete trust in not only in the major and the master sergeant or the master guns who's running the course, but also in the colonel who is in charge out there too. And then we talked about your time with the LAV community and uh, out on the squad pop-up range where a Marine was shot and your battalion commander came out and had enough trust and confidence in you to allow you to keep operating the range after somebody was shot. And that was a big comment about trusting. And then I asked the question, how do you, how do you establish trust between officers and enlisted when they're, when they're new? And your comment, which I think was one of the best comments was you've got to make NCOs special. You've got to give them a mission and then have the guts to let them do it their way. Because if you do it the opposite way, their initiative can and will be squashed. 
And the tool to do that and make NCOs feel special is issuing a mission and then giving them commander's intent and letting them go out and do it. And you, your comment was there may be a few teeth sucking sounds, but at the end of the day, uh, if you let people do it, they can either learn from it or, or get it, get it right. And we went on to talk about how challenging your command is now with 170606 subordinates at the different levels. And then the topic of the FMFM1 came up and how that is, that is a real primer to think. We went back onto the, the story of the NCOs making them special. And you shared a story that I thought was really great. And I think all junior and future and emerging leaders should think about doing this themselves, which was at the change of command, you got all the NCOs together a school circle I'm imagining it looked like at the barracks and somebody took a picture of it where you were just sitting with 300 NCOs of your new battalion and you had a chat with them about your expectations as the incoming commanding officer. And you said, you knew that if you could get the NCOs on board, you could turn three, six around. And then you went on to take them to Afghanistan with around 950 Marines. And then when you came up for your second deployment, 750 of those 950 Marines stayed in and deployed again with the battalion, which I think is a pretty good metric of how well that that command got turned around. And then you told the story about how you went around with some, uh, and you corrected me, with some Tennessee whiskey and uh, got got some people to give you some new washing machines and get those fixed. I, I thought that was a great, great vignette, but but really what, what got sussed out of that was uh, you got to get involved and you got to care about your Marines if you're a leader and you don't do that by sitting behind a desk. Then you said you have to take their personal time to be in command. And you you went on to talk about how important it was to be in the barracks on a Saturday. And you told the story about being on a motorcycle ride and asking Marines, you know, who's your battalion commander? When was the last time your platoon commander came here? And and you were getting negative responses and, and you knew that people weren't, as you put it, pushing back and and getting out and leading getting on their feet and getting out there and leading and how important that really is to be out there and identifying trends. You went then on to talk again about Lieutenant Colonel Lefebvre uh, with Kilo 38, when you had Kilo 38, and about how you had the foundations of an infantry battalion on your wall and the, and the six foundations of the infantry battalion, comm, motor, T, supply, mass, armory, and how you, how you and your, I'm assuming with First Sergeant, went out there and you put the X's in the blocks. And you Well, that's, that was when I was a battalion commander I did that. Yeah. Yeah. I learned that from, from Lefebvre when okay, I was a company But commander. you had that X, you had that board, you had that yeah. visual thing in your office and you and your sergeant major were dedicated to making sure that you got the X's in that yeah. every single week. And it was an accountability tool. It was a visual accountability tool. I thought that was a really great technique to share with, with emerging leaders to just have that in your face and remind yourself what you're, what you want, what your priorities are, and then holding yourself accountable to doing them. Cause sometimes it is hard to push away from the desk. I, I it just is, right. but you've got to do it. I asked you a couple questions about what do you remember the first time you ever had to put your foot down? And do you have a story to share with emerging leaders about that? You told the story about then Colonel Steve Davis, who was your regimental commander, and uh, 2-1 was coming in off the Mew, and, and they wanted to do a really complicated scheme of maneuver. And you said, no, we're getting online. We're going to do it this way because the first time in combat, everybody's going to just unload their magazines, and we're going to have a problem with some fratricide. And you said, even with the simple get online and just move through, you still had uh, a couple close calls there, but it was an example of how you stood up and, and had some moral courage and said to the regimental commander, you know, I, I don't think we should do it this way. And he, and he probably rankled him, but he, uh, he eventually agreed with you that it was a good idea. Then I asked you if you had any subordinates that ever challenged you like that. You mentioned Chris O'Connor and 
how he how he routinely disagreed with you and probably rankled you a little bit. But I think if Chris hears this, I, I will tell him that I watched your facial expressions and you and you made that comment in in the most complimentary fashion. And and you said that you had you know, really enjoyed having somebody there providing some disruptive discourse. Th- those are my words. You said disruptor, but providing that discourse. And then I asked you geez, do you wish you had more Chris O'Connors? Yeah. And you said, yes. Yeah. So we had a quick comment on like, how do you develop those people? And we had a quick conversation about how the Marine Corps may be moving to some more adoption of a 360 degree foot fit rep and command climate services and how that is so important for retention. And, and maybe the Marine Corps will come out with some sort of new policy for battalion commanders being in charge of retention. But we also kind of said, like, even if there's not an official policy on it, maybe you should just act like that. Maybe that's a great leadership trait. Principles to say, like, my goal is to retain these Marines. And even if you're not, it's not on your fitness report, maybe you should be doing that anyway as a leader. It's a lot of things that we're supposed to do as leaders that aren't on fitness reports. And then we talked about, you know, not challenging Marines that much and how that is kind of adding to people wanting to get out and the retention problem. And that it's really the climate at the battalion and low that's causing some of that people to do four years and get out and how important it is to do dangerous yet safe training and use IOC as an example of how we're doing it that way. We're doing really hard, dangerous training at IOC. And that went back to the trust that you have in the captains who are running that and how important it is to do walking around leadership. And we had a quick conversation about storytelling, how you get in the metal tube and you visit people. and, And I asked you the question, how do you get people to think like you? And you told the story about how you said, go above. And there was a disconnect. He thought you meant go north and he meant get up on higher ground or get up in the air. And how important it is it to work with people and give them feedback so they learn how to think like you. It takes some time, but it also takes some mentoring, I think. Yeah. We had a conversation about some things that you would do over again. And and you're, you told a couple vignettes there, which were, I'm assuming, very difficult to talk about. But you came back and you said, geez, if I had just maybe acted a little less aggressively or executed some patience. And those are some things I think are really important. And that led us into talking about, you've got to imagine yourself being there before you're being there and how important that is for a leader to prepare themselves emotionally and mentally before the actual you know, a combat event happens. And we started to wrap it up with some more conversation about making NCOs feel special. And your, your comment was, you know, have those Marines memorize the creed and read it, recite it, I think is what you said, like as they're, as they're getting promoted and how that just can set the condition for their transformation into a be, becoming an NCO and, and the, the responsibilities that that entails. And then you, you concluded with talking about how it was very fulfilling for you to change how we're making infantry Marines in the United States Marine Corps. And I, I really enjoyed that, that education too, because I was not personally aware of what was actually happening there and how we're you said, how do we make enlisted Marines more like infantry officers? How do we make the, the, give them more of an IOC experience? And you went through some things that you're considering there. We concluded there with you saying, uh, you know, you either meet the, the standards of the Ranger Regiment or you go back to the Army. And that was sort of a mindset that you were thinking about. How do, maybe we should be adopting something like that. Like, you know, you either meet the standards of the infantry community or you're not in the infantry community. And maybe that's going to set the standard for the next 30 years and some of the transformations we're going through as a Marine Corps. So that's the recap. And just like to say, any anything I missed there, sir? Anything you wish that I had asked? or No, I could tell another two hours worth of stories, but we won't do that. But thanks for uh, having me on. That was uh, It was fun. Yeah, I really appreciate this. And on, on behalf of everybody that listens to it, I think your, your vignettes and your 35 years of service, all your stories, so valuable to people who will be coming on the next 30 years in the Marine Corps. And uh, 
I know you, you are revered by people who are still in the Marine Corps. I just know that you're laughing, but you know it's true. So thank you so much for taking the time. I know you're very busy. You, you did this as a favor for my project, and, and I just want to express my gratitude as well, sir. So thank you very much. Uh, Major General Dale Alford here on Moments in Leadership. Thank you again, sir. Thank you.